This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Thank you, ladies. And thank you to the church board and, and uh, to you for the privilege of serving. We truly are, um, we feel that uh, you treat us way better than we deserve. You overlook some of our flaws, failures, and foibles, and thank you for the opportunity to serve you here at this church. This is part two of our series that we're calling Deconvert. And as I indicated last week, my goal for all of us during this series is to deconvert and lose our religion. But in the process, I hope that we will find Jesus. Because religion without Jesus is empty. Religion without Jesus is so frustrating. Religion without Jesus is mean. It's cruel. It's violent. Now, before we get too far in our lesson, let me say something that we've all thought, but you were probably too mature to say it out loud, so let me be immature and just say it. Religion can be very weird. If you've ever traveled to other countries and watched different religious practices, you can't help but sometimes think, boy, they are strange. I mean, all the stuff they do, the beads, the smoke, the incense, the eerie calls to prayer. I've even seen people in, in, in temples as part of their religious practice do, I don't know, I, I would just describe it something like a push-up, which was reason enough I didn't want to join their religion. Also, as part of their religious practices, I've seen people paint their faces, dance like there is no tomorrow, dress up like monsters and demons, sit cross-legged on the floor in an airport meditating. I've, I've seen people in the wee hours of the morning while on a transatlantic flight over the ocean put on robes and in view of 400 other people on the same flight pray in the galley of that plane. But not only have I seen Stuff like that in other countries with other religions. I've seen plenty of weird stuff close to home. There's an annual Christian gathering, and, and I don't know about now, but it used to be that almost every year some people supposedly would begin to feel the presence of the Lord, and they would, they would come, run to the stage, and grab a flower pot off of the stage and put it on their heads and go running around the convention center praising the Lord. Other people in church have been known to at times run on the backs of pews, and for those who saw it, it was pretty impressive until one day someone missed a step and the fall became more impressive than the run. In the name of religion, I've also see, personally seen people pass out. I've seen people shriek and yell and shake and shudder. And, and some of those things, I'm not judging, some of them were possibly in the spirit. But for someone looking on that maybe wasn't raised in that tradition... It, it can come across as flat-out weird. And, and before you get too smug and think that the way we do things here is right and normal and it's just everybody else that's weird, have you ever stopped to think about how an outsider might view the way that we conduct our services? In fact, this was last week I just stopped. And I tried to think of some of the things we say here and some of the things we do here that new people might think is just downright strange. You know, the way we raise our hands here, I think that's normal. But if someone comes in, and, and we've had people come in, and they've commented about it, 
you know, it's just kind of different the way you all raise your hands here. And, you know, some people raise their hands like this. Some people raise their hands like this. You know, if you weren't raised in that tradition, it can come across as strange. You know, something else I thought about is our music. If someone comes from a background where you sing only hymns with a piano, you know, hymns, you sing the first, second, and fourth verse. I don't know why we always left out the third verse, but but, but if you come in here and hear all of the instruments and, and the noise and, and the new songs, I, I'm sure that it can weird someone out. And, and then I, something else I thought about it a lot of times, and I did this morning at the end of the prayer, I will say, and all of the people said, amen. It's kind of like at the Bulldog football games, Jackson will say, and that is another Bulldog first down. And our version of it here in church is, and all the people said, Amen. And then taking this a few steps further, if, if we're not careful, our religion not only can come across as weird, but it can become superstitious. And there's a ton of superstition in, in, in religion, like don't put anything on top of your Bible. You know, it doesn't matter if you read it, just don't put anything on top of it. Or, uh, you know, I need to make sure that I have a cross around my neck or in my house to keep bad things away. Or I've even found, uh, Darren mentioned, you know what? Early service always has a good attendance whenever the chiefs play at 12 because they think the preacher is going to go over and, you know, you know that, that never happens, of course. But, uh, and, and no lie, I, when we were having Sunday night service before, uh, um, you know, before COVID hit and uh, this wasn't the chiefs, but it was someone else's team was in the Super Bowl, they never came Sunday night service, but they came on Super Bowl night when their team was playing. And I thought... Hey, buddy, you're superstitious. You think if you're going to come to church, God is going to honor your church attendance and help your team to win. <laughs> and then we, we even make our religion mystical. You know, I, I saw the face of Mary in a cloud, or I saw the face of Mary in a pancake. <laughs> you know, Saturday morning is pancake morning at our house. My wife makes homemade pancakes, none of that stuff out of a box. She makes them from scratch. She does the syrup. And this was when we lived in a third world country. We had to do that. And, you know, none of this Aunt Jemima. It's Aunt Faith's syrup. And, but, but I put down hundreds, maybe thousands of pancakes over the years, yet I've never seen Mary in my pancake. <laughs> uh, to, to, to me, that's just kind of goofy. And, and I know, I'm, I'm sorry, some of you are really into that kind of stuff. And, uh, but how do you know it was Mary? I, I mean, have you ever seen a picture of Mary? Uh, what, what if that was the face of Delilah trying to seduce you or Jezebel? I'm sorry if that offends you. Well, not really. <laughs> but, but then religion can also become very legalistic. You know, you have to do this and try harder and come forward and light a candle and become a member and, you know, whatever your tradition says. And, and then here's a big one. Religion can also fuel hypocrisy because the truth is nobody does religion as well as they pretend to. Not even me. You may want to write that down. Religion fuels hypocrisy. And a couple of other things about religion. One, it's, it's almost as if the harder and the odder is that a word, odder, more odd, more strange? The more religious it feels. You know, for example, in, in the country of my birth in South America, the practice was to carry, and you would suffer doing it, carry the largest rocks you could carry to the tops of mountains all around. 
That was the ultimate in spirituality. And, and, and you know, for, for us, sometimes we think, okay, if we just live off of the grid and, and we don't do social media or Facebook or, and, and certainly don't get a smartphone, just use a flip phone. And since we're the only ones that are old-fashioned enough to live by that standard, everybody else is worldly, we're the only true believers. And to wrap up my monologue on religion, have you ever found that religion changes so much? The moment we begin to think that we've cracked the truth code and have everything figured out, somebody else comes along and writes a book and, can you get this picture? It's almost like the chickens, all the chickens run to that side of the hen house. Well, somebody writes another book and the chickens run over to this side of the hen house. You know, we're so gullible, and and your mama said this, but your daddy said that, and your pastor said this, but the pastor on TV said that, and, and frankly, you think they're all wrong, and you think you've discovered real truth. In in fact, in my devotions this past week, and in the book of Isaiah, I came across a very powerful verse that I think describes our religion today. In Isaiah chapter 17, verse 7, and this is, uh, again, from the message uh, uh, translation, they'll lose, message paraphrase, they'll lose interest in all the stuff they've made, altars and monuments and rituals. Listen to this. This is what got me their homemade, handmade religion However impressive it is. That's our religion today. You know, this is what fits me. This is what I think. And, and it's homemade. It's handmade so that it fits us. Now, before there were church buildings and before there were, you know, we had stained glass windows and steeples and open the door and see all the people. And, you know, before there was Sunday school and before the 1611 King James Version came about, before you had hymns and, and before Bill Gaither had written a style of music that we've come to know as Gaither music, before every church began to put up a cross, and if you didn't, the church was worldly, and before all of that, if you look at the gospel at the beginning of the church, even though the church wasn't perfect because you had Ananias and Sapphira and others like that, yet you... Find a church that had a focus that was so refreshingly simple. You find that the gospel was about Jesus wanting to have a relationship with us. It was about Jesus loving us so much that he gave his life for us so that we could be forgiven and freed from a life of sin. That's the gospel. And and today's amazing story takes us back to the simplicity of the gospel. Our lesson, as it did last week, comes from the book of Acts. And, and of course, the, Acts is not really a book. We just call it that. It's a document written by a man named Luke, who also is the author of Luke. Surprising. Luke documents the early days of the church as the Holy Spirit worked through people like the Apostle Paul. And, and last week, we talked about Saul, who became Paul, who became the Apostle Paul, deconverted from his religion of Judaism, became a follower of Jesus. Well, Paul then decided, and, and we really can't even Im- imagine the emotion of this decision, but he decided to take the message of Jesus into the Greek and the Roman worlds, far away from Judea, far away from Palestine, far away from the influence of Jesus. And, and take a moment here and, and, and try to imagine what a hard sell this would be, because this was pretty much what Paul's message to them was. His message was this, a Jewish man by the name of Jesus who was born into a common home to a common carpenter, who then became a carpenter himself at the age of 30, became an itinerant prophet, 
with no money, no home, no financial security, no servants, but he claimed to be the Son of God. And Paul boldly said, I encourage you to abandon everything you believe about the Roman gods, everything you believe about the Greek gods, and I want you to become a follower of this, of this Jesus. And if they would say, well, okay, what happened to this Jesus? Paul had to say, well, he died. And they said, oh, um, how did he die? Well, he was crucified. And crucifixion in those days meant that he was a criminal. So, so question for you it, if you knew nothing about Jesus and Paul presented him to you that way, that we just said, would you have any interest in following him? Probably not. Plus, the, the Greeks and the Romans had their own worldview. They, they knew enough history to know that Israel had bounced around from Egypt to Palestine to Babylon to being under Roman influence. They knew that Israel wasn't even an independent nation. And so, for the, and so the Greeks and the Romans, as Paul talked to them about Jesus, they had to be like, oh, okay, Mr. Paul, you want us to throw away everything we believe about God? And, and let's get this straight. Follow this common carpenter turned prophet turned son of God who then the Romans crucified. Paul, I don't know what you've been smoking, but you're full of it, buddy. But in this fascinating story, and, and here's what I want you to get. It's amazing what happens when the Spirit of God shows up. Because this story about Jesus really isn't believable unless the Holy Spirit quickens it to us. You know, I can't convince anybody to follow Christ. Paul couldn't convince anybody to follow Christ except for the Spirit. In today's lesson, Paul is in Athens, Greece. This, by the way, is the same Athens you can visit today where you will see some of the exact same sites that Paul saw back 2,000 years ago. While in Athens, Paul discovers that Athens was a very, very religious city. Ancient Greece had many different gods and goddesses. Yet they had narrowed their important gods to, down to 12 gods that they call, called Olympian gods who resided on top of Mount Olympus. And those 12 gods included some of the names that we've heard, such as Zeus, Apollo, Ares, but as Paul walked around, he became very heavy-hearted as he saw all of the idols and the shrines and the, and the temples dedicated to these different gods and goddesses. He began to engage in conversation with these religious people. And this is where we pick up our reading, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Follow along, please. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of of idols. Now, you, you might not have thought about it this way. Let me just already call a time out here. The people of Athens, even though they were very religious, yet it was obvious that they were not confident in their gods. Anytime a religion feels they have to have a bunch of gods to cover the bases, to cover their basic needs, you know what that means? That means that they don't fully trust any of their gods. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Now, the Epicureans believed that life was all about pleasure, you know, just eat, drink, and be merry, and, you know, just have a good time. When you die, you die, so live it up, party hardy, don't hold back, enjoy life while you can. The Stoics were thinkers. 
They were philosophers. They said, okay, well, let's think about it, and then let's talk about it. And then we'll think about it some more, and then talk about it some more. Paul began to debate these Epicureans and Stoics. And as Paul started talking to them, some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? You know, what Paul was saying was so foreign to them, they just had a different worldview. Their focus was on their gods. They didn't know about Jesus. And, and uh, they thought it was just nonsense. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now the Athenians were used to people all the time trying to introduce another god. Someone to get this idea, well, I think there's another god. And, and so they thought, here's just another guy that wants to introduce another god. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, let me point out a couple of things that Paul did not do. First of all, he did not approach them and say, okay, you have your many other gods. I'd like to just add another one for your consideration, just to add to it. You know, his name is Jesus. Jesus was not an add-on. Nor did he say, okay, you have your many gods here. You know, I I can't believe you you guys are supposed to be smart, but you're dumb to worship idols, and if you don't turn, you're going to burn in hell where the worm dieth not. By the way, that's a quote from Mark 9, 44 in the King James Version. But Paul doesn't approach it from either one of those positions. Instead, he does something so brilliant. I wish I were as smart as he was. He takes the philosophical and abstract discussion that was the way that the Greeks approached religion and turned it into a discussion about a current event and said, not long ago, a man named Jesus in Palestine did amazing miracles. And the Bible doesn't give all the details here, just kind of reading between the lines, but perhaps Paul said, and this man turned water into wine, and, and maybe he turned to the Epicureans and say, you know, because they like to have a good time, said, I bet you wish you'd have been there, water into wine. This man also healed the blind, and he gave mobility to those who were immobile. He fed thousands of people with just a few fish and loaves, and Paul continued on and said, but in a strange twist of things, his own people betrayed him, handed him over to the Jewish leaders, and after a fake trial, even though he had committed no crime, he was convicted, handed over to the Romans to be crucified. And Paul emphasized that this was not just in the abstract. Their religion was always in the abstract. Paul said, this truly happened. And it happened very recently. Paul continued on and let them know that this man on the third day resurrected from the dead. Well, the philosophers and the theologians in Athens didn't know what to do with Paul. Because, again, they were used to discussing abstract concepts. You know, pie in the sky and what if and could it be and but here Paul is talking to them about real things that real people witness with their real eyes verse 19 then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting now here's a picture of the Areopagus Uh, this right here is in Athens it's this big rocky area Areopagus, that's the way it would have looked, very similar, probably without a bunch of people there when, when Paul was there. Uh, this is where they held court. If someone were wanting to present a new religion also, then the leaders would decide there 
on this hill, try to imagine back a couple thousand years ago, the leaders would decide if this person would be allowed to include this as an official religion that could be taught in the marketplace. So they, they take Paul to the Areopagus and, and they say, okay, before you start spreading this new religion in the marketplace, we want to hear the whole thing from start to finish. Because they said in verse 20, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We want to know what they mean. Well, in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. I mean, all the idols, the shrines, the temples made that very, very clear. Um, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. So, so Paul, you know, earlier in the scripture said that he was waiting on a couple of his fellow colleagues. Silas and Timothy were going to join him in Athens. And so while waiting on them, he had time to walk around and carefully look at their religious symbols. And he says this, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, this is important. As I mentioned, they felt that they had to cover all the bases with a bunch of gods. And, and they thought they had kind of figured out the gods. They thought they had figured out that, that a god that they called Hermes was the god that protected their livestock. They thought that a goddess they called Artemis was the goddess of the hunt, would give them meat. They thought that the god of Apollo would bring them healing, but they also believed if you were a bad boy, a bad girl that Apollo could make you sick as a punishment. There was the goddess of Aphrodite, uh, you know, the god of beauty and sex and love, and then one of the goddesses, Athena, she was the patron of military strategy. There was the god of Zeus, he was over all the 12 Olympian gods, and, and there was a temple that was built to him that was huge, and I was reading about this. It had 104 columns, each of them 56 feet tall. 56 feet tall. Now, I, I, I don't know, uh, Miller's, whoever built this, uh, how tall this ceiling is, but I, I think it's, what, 15, seven, 15 feet or so. So try to imagine about three times taller than this, the temple, 104 columns, 56 feet tall. But, but as I said, they were not very confident in their gods. And so just in case there was a god missing from their collection of gods, they had built a shrine to a god they called the unknown God. This was the just in case we missed a God, God. <laughs> just in case. Well, when Paul sees the statue to the unknown God, and again, this is so brilliant. He says, my fellow philosophers, I'm a philosopher as well. My friends, Epicureans, Stoics. Um, I thought you might want to know that I happen to have some information about the unknown God. And if you would give me your undivided attention. And he goes on and says, now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. Isn't that brilliant? Which got everybody's attention. Because they thought, this unknown God, we don't know anything about him. And, here is this guy that is going to enlighten us about this unknown God. Verse 24, the God 
who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hand. So Paul basically said, lesson number one, guys, God is bigger than your religion. See the temple you you built over there to Hermes? Um, The unknown God cannot fit in that temple. And then here's this huge temple to to Zeus. Uh, The unknown God cannot fit in that temple either, even though that temple is huge. So to all of you religious Athenians, it's good that you believe in this unknown God, but he can't fit into any of the temples you've built. And I'm sure the Athenians, they're like, and especially the Stoics, because they're, they're, they were intellectual. They were saying, hmm. And I'm reading between the lines here, so, so don't look for this in the Bible. But I, I have a feeling that the Stoics were saying, whoa, that makes good sense. Keep on talking, Paul. So, so he does in verse 25. And, and he's not served by human hands. It's as if he needed anything because he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything else. And, and so here's what they would do. They would bring food to the gods. And I've seen this in other countries as well. They, they would bring foods and, and put it at the statue, the idol. Sometimes they would bring money and, and, and leave it there. And you know what? It would magically disappear at night. <laughs> wonder how that happened. But Paul was saying, God, God doesn't need your food. He doesn't need your money. Rather, he himself is the giver, and he said he gives life, he gives breath, he gives everything else. Well, again, they had to be so impressed. And even though they probably didn't say amen, yet Paul is making good sense to them. He continues, verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and and the exact places where they should live. Now, in that one statement of from one man, Paul is beginning to turn the corner just a little bit. He's beginning to present the fact that there was one big God. There was not a God for hunting. There was not a, another separate God for fertility, another God for healing. This unknown God was a big God who not only created mankind, but as Paul said, established the exact boundaries of every nation, not to mention where everyone would live. And why did God do this? Notice three words here in verse 27. God did, did this so that men would seek. There's the first word, seek him. And perhaps, and here's the second word, reach out for him. Third word, find him. Seek, reach, find. By the way, there is a void within each of us that causes us to want to seek, reach, find. That's what religion is. That's what people are trying to do. They're seeking. They're reaching. Because there's a void within them. Well, Paul goes on and says, uh, having said that, my fellow philosophers, I, I have some amazing news. Though he is not far from each one of us. So, so Paul was saying for you Epicureans, you Stoics, it, it's obvious you're seeking God. And, and the amazing news is that God is not far from each of us. And, and then he quotes a couple of Greek poets and, and 
and says something that they've all heard many times in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of our own, your own poets have said, we're his offspring. And, and they have to be like, wow, I'm impressed, Paul. You know and quote from our own poets. This is brilliance. Tell us more, Paul. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. And maybe at this time, Paul points to all of the idols and the shrines and, and, and the temples around him and, and says, you know what? Divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by, by man's design and skill. So Paul was not only telling them that God was way too big to dwell in their temples, but he was saying God is way too big to dwell in an image of gold or silver and that they fashion with their hands. And God is way bigger. God is way greater. God is way more powerful. Well, Paul kind of really starts pressing and bringing this home. If you've ever been in sales, you know, you kind of presented it and you reach that point where you're going to try to close the deal. And, and, uh, and it's brilliant how he brings Jesus into the discussion in verse 30, in the past. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that something new has happened. In the past, that means there was something old, but there's something new. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance now, what ignorance was Paul talking about? Well, he was referring to their uncertainty, their ignorance, which had led them to feel they had to have a different God to cover the bases. And so God was saying, you know, in the past, all of that ignorance, uncertainty about their gods was understandable. God might overlook it, but now, in the past, but there's something new. And as a result of that, Paul says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, the, the little Greek word for repent in this passage of Scripture means change your mind. You know, have a change of mind, a change of heart. And Paul was saying, now is the time to change your thinking about God. Yes, in the past. You didn't have much knowledge, and you might have had an excuse, but something new has happened. Now there is a command from God that we repent. And then this next verse is a game changer for these religious people. Verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men. It's a game changer by raising him from the dead. So, so follow along with Paul's brilliance. In the past, their religion had all been abstract and theory and, and philosophy. But Paul's saying that this new thing that has happened is that God decided to make himself known, which means that God was no longer the unknown God. Isn't this brilliant? I know I keep saying that. This unknown God made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. And because God knew that we would tend to be skeptical. This God that they were calling the unknown God decided to prove his legitimacy, not through more philosophy, not even through theology, but he decided to prove that he was the true God. How? By raising Jesus from the dead. And, and maybe Paul added, by the way, if that sounds too far-fetched for you to believe, let's all jump on a boat and float a thousand miles to the actual place of this event and talk with some of the people who witnessed this firsthand. They saw it, they witnessed it, they talked with him afterwards. They talked with him before and afterwards, after he died. 
Well, in every crowd you had the skeptics. And probably here today, there may be some skeptics. In verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But God's Spirit was so faithful. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. And and catch this, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. So what, what Paul did was strip away all the stuff that we've loaded onto Christianity. And he said, what I'm presenting to you is legit. Why? Because Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's the game changer. Perhaps uh, some of you have had a bad experience in church or a bad experience with a Christian. We all have. We all have come in contact with those people that made us think, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want to be part of it. But if you could somehow peel away, if you could somehow peel away all the stuff that people like me and others through the years of lumped into Christianity, the the weird stuff, the hypocrisy, the legalism, the buildings, the steeples, you know, the the, the shame on you because you're divorced. When you strip all of that away, what you find is so liberating. God made himself known through his son Jesus, who died for our sins, but resurrected from the dead. And that's why you can trust him. That's why I have no trouble banking my entire eternity on Jesus Christ. Why? Because he resurrected from the dead. And and if someone can do that, I have no problem trusting him. And so Paul said, the fact that you've known that there is a God is great, but your religion with all of the gods is incomplete. But the great news is this, that as you've been seeking God, he's also been seeking you. As you've reached out to God, He has reached out to you in the person of Jesus. He's not far from you. And you don't have to live your life wondering, you know, do I have all the bases covered? Is, you know, is there another God that we should build an idol to? God God has made himself known through Christ. He is not an add-on. He's not an option that you add to your homemade religion. The cross is not something that you put by your rabbit's foot or your lucky jersey before the Chiefs play. Jesus is a standalone God that can meet the deepest needs of our heart. He's a standalone God that can bring forgiveness. And the amazing thing is, this is amazing that some people in Athens abandon all of their gods, all of their stone, silver, gold idols, and embrace Jesus as their Savior. And that message took hold all over Europe, all over Greece, all over the known Roman world. And even, here's what's amazing, it spread to Alberta Springs. So this morning as we head to Sunday school, could we just strip away all of the stuff that you got loaded up with Christianity, all of the stuff. And, and could we just seek Jesus? And you know, whenever we seek Jesus, he's going to give us clarity on all this other stuff. So again, my goal for us as a church is during this time, you know, I think we're, 
we're, we're, we're focused on so many things here, but could we just kind of strip away the focus that we have and focus on Jesus? And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is up to date, if, if somehow you have allowed your relationship with God to become other stuff, doing, and could you just come back to the person of Jesus and put your trust in him again? And maybe there's somebody here this morning that hasn't done that the first time. You say, well, what do I do? How can I do this? Well, repent. Change your thinking. Change your heart. Let go of the bad. Invite him into your life to cleanse you, to forgive you, and put your trust in Jesus alone. Could we pray together? Lord, I want to thank you for this account here boy my my approach would have been so different it's you guys are so dumb why are you worshiping a bunch of idols but as the holy spirit empowered paul paul began to present to them that this unknown god he was unknown at one time but he became known through the person of jesus lord i pray that you would help us to um to be able to strip away, you know, some of the stuff that we have added into Christianity and, and God, that you would cause us to just know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Lord, that we would be made conformable to his image. Lord, I pray that this week that you would become so real to us. Lord, I, I pray that there would be just something about it that this week that when we pray, you would be real to us. When we spend time in your word, you would be real to us. Lord, whenever we go to work, that you would be real to us. I pray that there would be just a revival of realness to where Jesus is present in our lives, front and center. Lord, we thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. Just uh, if you want to do some reading ahead for next week, Romans chapter 8. We're going to get into just a really powerful verse there. Lord willing, uh, Romans chapter 8. So uh, go ahead and study up on that. And uh, we will see you Wednesday night. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.